Yeah. Lee Brown is a successful realtor, forward-thinking CEO, and number one best-selling author. She runs one of the top real estate teams in the country, brings her Southern sass to anything she does, and has become a highly sought-after speaker at the national level. Lee's also taken a path of deep volunteer support for government affairs at the national, local, and state level. She's used that Southern draw to snag fat pack checks all over this country, and she has a deep appreciation for the importance of the advocacy work of the National Association of Realtors. Her appreciation runs so deep, she decided to throw her hat in the ring when she sought to win North Carolina's 9th Congressional District during a special election held earlier this year. She didn't win the seat, but she learned some lessons along the way. Lee's making the case for gut-checking how deep your, quote, relationships run when they're built on the back of an artificial perspective. She says social media matters, but what matters more in your life and business is authentic relationships that can't be had in tweets and Insta stories. She's written a new book about peeling the onion back on your relationships, and we started our conversation focused on the case she's making in it. Here's Lee giving the rundown on what the new book is about. I think we all know something's going on with the way that our interpersonal relationships are happening right now, that we are not as dialed in as we once were, that we are not looking for depth like we once did. And in fact, we're kind of afraid to go below the surface because we might find something that's at odds with our own personal purity test. And I found this out specifically when I ran for Congress, when I had some of my confirmation biases were confirmed. When you find out too much about people, you turn away from them. There's so many different ways I could say this, and they're just, they're kind of painful. But I had decades-long relationships with people who, when I came out of the closet, and I look at it this way, as a Republican, so now people know how I vote, even though you probably guessed it before, now you know they were no longer wanting to be affiliated with me because now what they thought they could assume was that conflict with what they wanted to believe. And so they just shut me off. And it got me thinking about the, the loss of depth in our relationships, but how critical that depth is, because frankly, my favorite people are the ones that I don't have a lot of agreement with on every issue, but I thrive on the fact that they're different from me and that we have really cool conversations because I get so bored with people that are a hundred percent aligned with me. So I'm trying to figure out how to create a conversation that helps people take actual steps toward fixing some of these issues. And the image that, of course, came to mind was that of an onion, because we know that onions provide depth in a recipe. They provide depth of flavor. They are amazing. But to use them in cooking is going to make you cry. It is going to make your hands sink. There is going to be something going on that is less than perfect so that you can get a better outcome. And that's where I started. And so the concept of the book kind of moves in a path of helping people reach a little bit deeper in their relationships, get off of the biases that come in from social networks and 
and create something better. But do you think that we blame social media too fast? Because my sense is, you know, it's not going anywhere. Like the time that we spend at Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and all the TikTok, whatever the kids are using these days, that's not going where. And, and so my question is, how can I create depth in my relationships, but do it in a way that's consistent with these tools and tactics that are going to continue to be a part of my life because of my professional commitments, but also because personally, I find that fulfilling in some way, or I wouldn't keep doing it, right? Okay, so if you look at the original intent of social media, it was originally intended to allow us to reconnect and find out more about each other. And it does have positive implications. But what happens is we start skating on that surface, and we stop looking below. And you know, as well as I do, your best friend from forever you go have a cup of coffee with them. You don't even pick up a phone. You don't look at anything and you look into their eyes and now you're hearing the inflection and the energy and you see the body language and you can pick up a conversation a year later where you left it off because that depth, that mild deep experience with someone. And my concern with social media is that it was originally intended to help increase the depth, but instead it's encouraged us to be a mile wide and an inch deep. Let's have 5,000 friends instead of 50 really good ones which has led us to a shallowness that starts to separate us from each other. Because think about it. If somebody doesn't agree with you and you have 5,000 available people, then it's easy to shut the one off and find somebody else that can confirm your confirmation bias as opposed to, well, I'm in life with these 10 people. I need to figure it out. I guess what I hear you saying is it lacks the context of what real relationship looks like and real community looks like because you don't get that body language. You don't get that X factor that comes from sitting across the table with someone and breaking bread or having coffee. Um, but then I think the flip side of that is that in some ways you might be more authentic or more intimate with people that you might not be comfortable enough to do so with in person. You know, I can think of my own experiences of having shared the journey of my son and his kidney transplant at a very young age. I would not have shared that with 2000 people, generally speaking, except that I found opportunity to do so in social media and found a network of people and support that I would never have had without that platform. So I might have been spread a mile wide and an inch deep, but that mile wide served me well. And that absolutely makes sense. And I felt the same thing when my son was in ICU two years ago and I needed support. And so social networks will totally right. flood you with support. But you still have to ask yourself, what have we let go in order to go for the easy high of the Facebook comments and the likes and the loves? Because we know that that's feeding the dopamine in our brains and we get a rush from those interactions that we, we perceive those to be real interactions. But the, the flip side of it is most people are not thinking of social media as a way to be vulnerable and inviting, which you've done and which I do because I, frankly, I'm an introvert. So I need social media. So let me just put that out there. I am a more sociable person because of social media. But there's so many people that feel this mm. pressure to create the perfect version of themselves online and they don't let you behind the curtain. And I think the easiest way to draw that example is the people who are having relationship issues, You, they would never come online and say, my husband and I are having issues because then people are going to flood in and be like, oh, girl, leave him or, oh my gosh, go to therapy. And that's not really your business. It's not really helpful, but you still need support during that time. But what you'll notice is like your friend online stops posting pictures with their husband. It's mm -hmm. just them all the time. And you can start to spot the clues. But once you spot the clues, the question for me becomes, what do you do with that? And in 
today's world, there's such a concern about offending and getting in somebody's face and being a nosy person, whatever. Mm -hmm. We just kind of let it slide when that might be their cry for help. So if I look at peeling the onion, I'm going to look at social media because it is a critical part of relationships today. I firmly believe because I need to know when something's going on in somebody's life. If they've posted it, it's probably pretty critical information. So what do you do next? I mean, what you do next shouldn't just be a click. It should be a call. And so you start thinking about taking it that one level deeper. So looking at you when your son went through that kidney transplant, you had all this online support, Mm -hmm. but I would wager that a tiny percentage of those people called you and texted you and said, Hey girl, how can I help? I'm praying for you. And those people took your public inch deep and they took it a mile deep. And I think that's the gift of social media, but we have to make sure that we embrace that and find a way to do it in a productive way instead Mm -hmm. of using it as a crutch. And the example that I like to use is, I mean, growing up in the South, and you know this, you pretty much all grow up in some kind of a church environment, whether you're a firm believer or not, your parents or grandparents probably were because society and it's just where we grew up. Somebody dies in the church 30 years ago, everybody shows up, everybody sends a card, everybody calls, food is flooding the house. Now, if something happens, you get social media posts. And that's not something that's going to feed your need in the same way that those really human personal touches used to do. So if you're going to peel the onion correctly, you have to say, I'm, I'm going to be willing to spend extra time on somebody that matters to me. I'm going to take the time to write a note and tell them I noticed. I'm going to take the time to bake a cake. And so they know that I noticed and they'll know that I spent that time on them. Long story short, it's got to be a blend. And I get concerned about people who don't know how to deepen that blend. And I think it's very evident in our political space because our political space doesn't really showcase the people who are nuanced and who have lots of different opinions and lots of different views because we see one thing And now we're either for them or against them, boom, and you're not going any deeper. And we have to go deeper with each other because there's always something underneath the surface. When I think about what my members do every day, what you do every day, and I think about the the battle there between my leads are made online or it's an expectation that I do business in social media in the way that so many of my colleagues do, but also I can understand what Lee Brown is telling me and I want to find opportunity to deepen my relationships and provide depth with my client. How should a realtor, an everyday agent, strike that balance? They have to think about what the old guard did and especially with our younger realtors. And I, and I don't mean this as a generational slam. So if you're listening to this, I'm not slamming millennials, but let's be honest. There's a lot of conversation amongst younger realtors that think the only way to do real estate is the technology-driven iPad world of cloud and tech. And that the old guard don't know what they're doing. Flip side of it being the old guard says those young people don't know what they're doing with all this text and all these devices and the way we do it works. Well, the reality is both ways work, but the most successful realtors have figured out how to blend it. And so if you're a realtor who loves your online space, you love social media and you love text and you love all of the beauty that gadgets bring to you. If you are going to take that extra step, write a handwritten note. And I'll tell them the easiest way to do this is use social media as your clues. So if somebody on Instagram has posted a picture of their precious puppy that they've had for 17 years who just crossed the rainbow bridge, don't just put a crying emoji in the comments. Get a piece of paper out of your desk and write them a note that says, I'm so sorry that you lost 
spot hound because I loved my dog too. I and what you're going through and I love you and send that. And you're going to have them think about you differently. And especially with your client base, our realtors are competing in probably the most competitive real estate space we've ever seen. We've got 1.38 million realtors nationally, not counting the licensees, not counting the websites and the mutual funds and the hedge funds and the virtual companies out there competing with you. You're competing with your neighbor who has their realtor designation too. If you took that extra time to say, I saw that your puppy passed and I feel for you, they're going to think you're a different kind of human. And when they think you're a different kind of human, they're going to make the natural assumption that you're a different kind of realtor. And that's all it takes. It's not a ton of money. And it works. Handwritten notes have worked for years. And, you know, you and I both know the biggest excuse they give us for not writing handwritten notes. I don't know what to say. That's fantastic. Use social media for clues. Look for birth. Look for death. Yeah. Look for job change. Yeah. Look for love. Look for heartache. Respond to it. I mean, that's what we've always done for our best human friends. We care for them. You should do the same thing for your online community because it deepens those relationships. And then suddenly you want to go have a cup of coffee. Well, now you could post it and say, who wants to have a cup of coffee with me? And people will respond. And then you go spend some time with them. And Shazam, your world just got deeper. And that's a good thing. Yeah. And so it makes sense to me that you're saying you don't have to do one or the other. You need to blend those experiences. Use the social media for what it's good for, but also find opportunity to create depth in the relationship and depth in, in your communication with a neighbor or a friend or a client. And then to also remember that you can't turn ugly when somebody doesn't make you their realtor. And this is a, it's a harsh reality. And I, I love our members for their passion, but they'll sometimes go on social networks and complain about the disloyalty of the buyer and seller public because they use somebody else. So my reminder is this, if we have an estimated population in the U.S. of 330 million people, okay? So take 330 million, divide it by the 1.38 million member realtor organization. You have an average of one realtor for every 239 Americans. Not even taking into account the under 18s that can't have a license. And so let's just round it and say one out of every 150 Americans is a realtor. Well, suddenly you realize that the people that you love, your friends and your family, they may also have other realtors that are in their friends and family sphere that they love and they might choose someone else. And you have to be big enough to say, that's okay. I'm going to love them anyway because they may or may not make me their realtor, but I am still their neighbor. And you learn how to be a bigger human in that regard, the business will find you. And that person may come back to you five years from now when the friend that they use today is out of the business because the attrition rate is so high, but you're not ever going to have that chance if you lean into the the small attitude of scarcity instead of the amazing attitude of abundance. Mm-hmm. And so you talked a little bit about having to move through your relationships with friends and and colleagues that you felt like you'd known a long time as you sought elected official political office, right? And uh, you started our conversation by saying people didn't know I was a Republican. And guess what? Here I am out of the closet. What has that experience taught you? What else would you tell a realtor that you've learned from that, that you apply to your business now? Well, the first thing I would say is, please don't make assumptions about people when you find out they have an R or a D behind their name, because I believe that I'm a pretty nuanced individual and I am a pretty purpley person because my beliefs are all over the place, which I think is most humans. But the world has told us that if you're in one party or the other, 
you have to click off the check boxes in the purity list. And when that happens, people start making assumptions. And so if I am a declared Republican, then my declared Democrat friends have to accept that they know who I am and they know my character and that that should be more important than knowing what I may or may not do in the ballot box. Because frankly, you still don't know what I do in the box. You're not supposed to, but we should probably stop telling people how we vote because that's created some issues. But regardless, we can't assume things about people. And I think that the current political climate has allowed us to do so. I got comments from people on both sides of the aisle on the Republican side. Oh, thank heavens. You're one of us. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, yay, but it's kind of weird. So you shouldn't like me more knowing how I vote, right? You should already like the who I am. And then from the other side of the aisle, I got some pretty vicious messages of, I liked you before. I used to take your classes. I used to respect you. Now that I know how you vote, I'll never speak to you again. I'm unfollowing. You're a racist, bigot, misogynist. Always my favorite as a woman to be called a misogynist or whatever. And so you get this list of ifs, and I'm like, wait, what? We've been friends for a decade. How can you hate me when you knew who I was before? But now that you know my affiliation, it shouldn't change anything. So again, it's both sides of the aisle. And I find that to be a pretty, pretty striking piece of information to gather, but it, it really has served me as how can I make this better? Because that's how I, that's how I operate life. How do I make this better? How do I help people look beyond what their confirmation biases are, what their assumptions are, and help them understand that none of us have the monopoly on good ideas and none of us have the monopoly on right opinions. We are supposed to think about our communities as neighbors. And when we think about our communities as neighbors, you start knowing your neighbors are different. They have different needs. And how do we serve different needs in an effective way without excluding any one group of people? And there's so many ways to think about this. I'll tell you what was pretty fascinating to me when I was in debate situations and in interview situations as a candidate in a Republican primary, you know, what are your top issues? What would you do when you get to Washington? My number one answer every single time, I want to be a part of the conversation on the reform of Fannie and Freddie because that affects the 30 year mortgage. We have to protect the 30 year mortgage because it's the cornerstone to affordability. And I would get shot back with that's a Democrat issue. Like you can't be serious. That's an everybody issue. Almost everybody in any room I was in bought their first house with a 30-year fix. They want their kids to buy their first house. It's probably going to be a 30-year fix because it does allow for people to amortize their loans and make a start somewhere because you have to start somewhere. And I think realtors should be at the heart of that conversation because we do this every day. And that is my expertise. My expertise is housing and my expertise is housing policy. But then to be told that it's not the right issue for me to talk about that it's not sexy enough. And I, I will agree with them. It's not a sexy topic, but I will tell you this. If we lost the 30 year fix in the reformation of Fannie and Freddie, the repercussions will go across neighborhoods, across states, across price points, across socioeconomic groups in a way that will be irreversible because we all know that when bad policy goes through, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle pushed it through. Fixing it is next to impossible. And the example I was using was Obamacare because it sounded good on paper. The policy got passed without being effectively looked at by the right experts. And now it's a hot mess. And people, regardless of political affiliation, understand that Obamacare is a mess. So how we fix it has become a giant Pandora's box of 
solutions that don't seem to work for anything at all. And so I don't know what our answer is. I'm hoping that some economic brain will figure it out who's not a partisan person because that's what it's going to take. And I don't want to see that happen to housing. And so I firmly believe we have to have realtors at the table and you have to be smart enough and bold enough to A, know your positions and B, stand up to the people who tell you that it's not your job to talk about it because I think it is my job. And at least I got a few people thinking about it in a different way. So I might not have won my primary, but I did get some people to think about it. And hopefully the guy who won my district will wind up listening to us on housing policy because he was in the room with me several times. I'm hopeful. God, you just so beautifully demonstrated the value of the Realtor Party and of the issues that the National Association of Realtors advocates for all members on. NAR is one of those entities that a lot of assumptions are made about, where people struggle with understanding if every member has a fair shot to serve, if every member could be as involved as you have been in NAR for many years. But that was just an excellent, excellent way to drive home the value of the work of the advocacy department and and, and that line of business within NAR. And I, I think, too, we, we should point out to our members, whenever we talk about advocacy and policy, there's a natural inclination to immediately say, oh, you're loaning politicians' pockets. That's not what we do. That's not what the money does. The money isn't educating people. It's paying our lobbyist staff because you have to pay the humans that are walking the halls to do this work. But the thing that I learned the most running for office, and I was so grateful for the realtors who supported me because it was unexpected and has been the most emotional thing ever that my professional colleagues supported me as a candidate. And it was people across the aisle who supported me. So I had my Democrat realtors would send me a message. You're the only Republican I've ever given money to. And I just was so grateful because they know who I am. And that mattered more than the letter behind my name because they know how I would go to battle for us. But the money is spent to find voters and educate voters. And we have to remember that you can't reach all people in one channel anymore. We used to could get people in the newspapers. Very few read the papers anymore. You used to could reach people in the news network. They're not all watching the news anymore. You used to could reach people in social media. Now they're in a thousand different social media channels. And so you have to use all these ways to get in front of today's voter. And that's what the money does. It's more about education and outreach than it is about money. Because I'll tell you, I didn't make any money running for office. I went in the hole running for office. And our members need to understand that, but they also have to understand that if we don't have advocates in the hall talking about the critical nature of the 30-year fix, then we could lose it. And we cannot be on defense on these issues. We have to be on offense because each of us knows what would happen to our community. Well, how do you help a member understand how those policy decisions are made, though? Because what I hear is, well, you're not lining up right for me on this issue, or you're not lining up right for me on that issue. And you and I both know that as a staff, as a volunteer engaged in the process, we all work very hard to make well-rounded decisions, but we're never going to line up 100% with you individually. So what do you tell that member? How do they overcome those statements? Well, the first thing I tell them is we have to take care of people in leadership. And so I may not agree with Speaker Pelosi on things, but we need her as a friend because she's going to determine if our issues get a voice. You may not agree with Senator McConnell on things, but you have to be friends with him so that you can have a voice. And so the contributions that we make can often just keep doors open so that we can have a conversation. And we have to be honest about that. It's the reality of it. And if you think we shouldn't give money across the aisle, then you're crazy. And the best example I give people, especially if they're a Say it's an angry Democrat, okay? So we'll have two, both sides are angry. Don't get mad, Democrat friends. We have an angry Democrat who can't believe we give money to Mitch McConnell. Okay, the reality is this. He's a Republican senator in a Republican-led Senate, 
and you have to have friends on the other side of the aisle because they are going to be there. They need to be our friends. Now, the angry Republicans don't like that we're giving money to Speaker Pelosi. We don't want to give her money. Okay, look, she's in a safe district. She's going to get reelected as often as she wants. She's the head of the party. She's, she could be a thousand years old. And I don't care what conspiracy theory you're reading. She's drinking infant blood or whatever that really weird stuff is on the Internet. It doesn't matter. She's going to get elected. She's going to be in charge because the woman is shrewd and smart. We want her as a friend. And so you start realizing that the giving the money across the aisle is to keep doors open. And I think once our members understand that, they kind of get it because they live in a safe district, probably. There's a few purple districts out there. But if we are honest and transparent about it, we know that gerrymandering politically exists. And we know that these districts are protected. And so we need a friend there. But that's what our money does. It makes sure that we have friends. And if you don't like an elected official because you disagree with them on, let's just say, abortion rights, maybe you're a pro-choice person or a pro-life person, you don't like that one. Well, if they're the chair of House Ways and Means, um, hello, we have to be friends with them because appropriations make sense for housing. And so there's times when you have to say, I'm not going to get to win the whole board of Monopoly. I don't get to have every space on the board, but I can make sure that I have the spaces where the pieces are most likely to land. So let me go buy up those particular spots. Let me get Pennsylvania Ave and I'll also grab St. Charles Place because the pieces are going to land there at some point but you won't get to have the whole board. And the thing about making friends is that the perception is that we hand over fat checks and so people are our friends and there's a quip pro quo there, but that's not the reality. The reality is I might make a, a contribution to a campaign on behalf of the association through our PAC, but that's only the start of a relationship that has to be managed and milked and, and sought over for a very long period of time. You start the relationship in the election cycle because that's when they begin their career in public service. But it doesn't stop there. And I think that that perception that you can make or break a friendship in the election is a poor one. And it's a place where people get hung up because they don't like the idea of the money that changes hands at election time. But it's an important aspect of beginning a relationship with someone that's going to serve you, to your point, whether you like it or not. So I'll tell you that what was said last week, we had our North Carolina Realtors Convention and one of our general sessions, we had four members of the North Carolina House and Senate on stage talking about housing issues and of course it's both sides of the aisle and it's both houses of our elected body. And the best point was made, and I think it was by our minority whip, and he's a Democrat right now because we have Republican held House and Senate, but you've got to have your minority whips, right? Because we need both of both sides of the aisle. And he gave the giant shout out to our state government affairs director, Katie Thomas, who's a freaking rock star. Who's a badass, let's just call it what it is. But he, he looked over at Katie <laughs> yeah. and he said, the thing about the realtors is that y'all build relationships long before you make an ask. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly who we are because it's what our members do with building up their businesses on a day-to-day basis with listings and buyers. They build the relationship before they make the ask. And the same thing happens politically, which is why we are one of the most respected lobbying groups, because we are looking out for communities. And the way I like to put it is that we are the only public uh, political action committee that is not a special interest group. We are public interest because the work that we do as realtors is not for us. It is for you, the person in the community for whom nobody else will ever speak. We are the only voice at the table on behalf of our buyers and sellers because they're one buyer, one seller. We're 1.38 million voters. And we forget that sometimes when we look at our association membership, 
we're not just 1.38 million members, we're 1.38 million voters. And our elected bodies know it. In fact, you go to any city council meeting, and you know this, because you've gone to Austin City Council on behalf of your members. If you have three members there wearing the realtor R, all the elected officials are like, uh-oh, the realtors are here. And they know we have something on the table because three can actually constitute a giant majority of people because nobody else shows up. But we're there. Oh, I love that. And we need more of that to happen. And if more of our members would do one city council meeting a year or one school board meeting a year, they would find out that our impact would be ridiculously multiplied. Oh, that was so beautiful. Thank you for wrapping that up in a way that was just, you put a bow on it. And you're right. We're looking forward to more Austin Realtors and Central Texas Realtors being engaged in that process day to day. So thanks so much for hanging out with me, Lee. I appreciate you doing this with me. Oh, thank you for having me. You know, I always love talking about this stuff. And hey, members, if you're listening to your amazing CEO here and you want to know the member perspective of why I volunteer my time on this instead of just selling houses, you can reach out to me anytime. Emily will get you involved. But I will tell you this. If any old guard member tells you that you need to sell more houses to be heard, don't listen. If they tell you this is the way we've always done it, don't listen because we need new perspectives, we need new voices, and we need your opinion at the table so that we can make sure that our perspective is well-rounded, well-thought-out, and has gone a mile deep instead of a mile wide. Hey team, let's make this a thing. If you like what you heard today, share this episode on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and tag me at mshinevere. That's E-M Shinevere. You can also subscribe to Scratch That on SoundCloud and iTunes, and grab show notes at abor.com slash scratch that. Thanks for joining me today. Now let's go get some stuff done out there. <laughs>